Welcome to the Unfinished Church. I'm Latrell Miller Easterling. I'm Gregory Palmer. And I'm Mike McKee. We're listening to the Unfinished Church podcast. The Unfinished Church is a place for brave conversations to build a world in which racial prejudice has no power. God is not finished with us. In our conversation with Ibu Patel, I was struck about how many times a day that we can come in contact with a person of another faith tradition than ours. And I'm not talking about just another Christian tradition, but another faith tradition. And Ibu highlighted this in so many good ways. And in fact, one time I was reminded about something he said that really hit home. And that is is about the, the bias experienced by his sons who are Indian Americans and playing basketball and what people thought they were capable of or not capable of. I had a similar sense in the conversation with Brother Ibu, and that is how easily all of us jump to conclusions and work through these lenses and filters that we already have. Some of them we've inherited. Other people have kind of talked in our ear through the years, you know, perceptions about groupings of people by race or ethnicity or by national origin, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes I find myself seeing someone through the lens of something I heard about my parents say about a particular group of people. And to think that we've worked to undo all of that and it's still going on and the painful thing and yet the leveling effect that we all actually still do it. Well, it really resonated with me because it took me right back to a time much earlier in my professional life when I was working as a prosecuting attorney and someone made an assumption about who I was because of the color of my skin, thinking that rather than being a member of the bar and a person there working in the court, that I was there because I had a case to be adjudicated. And I can tell you the sting is real. I can feel it even to this day. And I had to think about um, how much I wanted to call people on it because I had to continue to work in that system. And I needed uh, that judge to be able to uh, continue to respect me or, or to gain respect for me, right? Because again, I, I had been uh, misperceived, but uh, it is a very daunting experience. And that's why I think these conversations are so important. In a conversation I had with Ibu Patel to prepare for this podcast, He mentioned to me a book that he was working on, and it is now in print, and it is called We Need to Build, and we certainly do. So I want to introduce you to my friend Ibu Patel. This is the Unfinished Church. Let's get started. It's terrific to be with you. Thank you for having me, Bishop McKee. Thank you. So today we're talking about implicit bias those assumptions, often unexamined or unconscious, that shape how we see and interact with other people. From your perspective, as someone who daily navigates intercultural relationships and promotes interfaith cooperation, in what ways do you see implicit bias rear its head? You know, I have a friend who's a faculty member at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and we went to, we were actually undergraduates together at the University of Illinois in Champaign and, you know, known each other through the years. He is an African-American man, and when he was a younger professor, he would sit 
in on the first day of class, he would sit uh, amongst the students. And, you know, five minutes into class having started, 10 minutes into class having started, nobody would know who the professor was. And he would just kind of pretend he was amongst them. They would they'd kind of look around like, is the professor here somewhere? And nobody would look to him as the possible professor. And then, of course, he would stand up and introduce himself. My name is Professor David Stovall, et cetera, et cetera. And it was this incredible exercise in people's implicit bias because nobody thought that the young black guy who dressed like an urban hipster was the person with the PhD who was going to be teaching the class and had written the books. Uh, And I thought that that was such a great way of like kind of confronting people with, hey, you know, who do you, what is your image of what a professor is? You know, in my own life, the truth be told is in most of the rooms that I walk into these days, I am a known quantity. I'm the founder of an organization. I write books. I give speeches. And so, you know, people have seen pictures of me on posters before I walk into a room. And so the implicit bias I experience is minimal compared to what I what I did experience growing up. But I watch it in my kids. And my kids are 11 and 14. They're both basketball players. You know, we're Indian Americans. And when they bristle knowing that when they approach a basketball court, nobody thinks that they're going to be any good. And it's made them tougher as players. And that's not a bad thing when it comes to basketball. But boy, can that wear you down in life in general. And, and, you know, I never want to forget the implicit bias that I experienced in, in all those years where I was not a known quantity, where it wasn't my face on posters. You know, Ibu Patel will be speaking at SMU next month or something like that. Because these are, you know, it's, it's daily pinpricks that can collectively draw a quantity of blood. My fellow bishops and I believe that the theological bedrock for building healthy intercultural relationships is the belief that all are created in the image of God and have sacred worth. So what are the core convictions that undergird your interfaith work and your relationships? You know, as you said before, Mike, so so much of what I do comes out of being a Muslim and how that tradition intertwines in such a complementary way to what I understand the ideals that are America, the higher ideals. And so I'll, I'll put this in as Islamic terms for now, but just know that I see a lot of resonances between these deep stories in Islam and the I think the hopeful version of the deep story of America. So in Islam, we, we believe that everybody's born with the breath of God, that the way we are created is that God picks up a lump of clay and gives it his breath and thereby creates Adam, the first human being, the first prophet, and says to Adam, you are going to be my Abd and Halifa, my servant and and representative on the planet. Uh, You are the steward of my creation. And then God sets up a contest between Adam and the angels. And God says to the angels, I want you to name the different parts of creation. Tell me the names. And the angels say, oh God, the only knowledge we have is to sing the glories of your name. And then God turns to Adam and says, you tell me the names. And Adam has the knowledge and the ability to do it. And for me, that was such a powerful moment reading that passage of the Quran when I was a graduate student at Oxford, because the term names is not singular, it's plural. God has made creation diverse. It's not a monoculture. It's not one thing over and over again. It is many things. And 
Adam, our common ancestor, our first guide and prophet, created with God's breath as we all are, had the ability to name and flow with diversity. That's the gift that we human beings have. And so, so much of like of my work with Interfaith America, formerly IFYC, is about that fundamental equality that human beings have, the diversity in the world, and our gift and responsibility to nurture that diversity in positive ways. So it's interesting, just as a comment, that um, when, you, when you begin to tell a story from your own faith tradition, how it sometimes may intersect with our own stories that we have, that we have this we have some common shared stories among religions. And I think that's important for all of us to know. I mean, you know, there's, we Muslims believe in a very focused way that there's one God and that God sends many revelations. The revelation ends with the Quran, but the, the, pre, the previous revelations, the Hebrew Bible, the gospels, these are all revelations of God and they're continuous. And, it, and there are common themes and monotheism and mercy are the most important of those common themes. In this podcast, we have used each time the language of the beloved community to cast a vision for the society in which racial prejudice no longer has any power. How do you talk about your vision for society and how does racism interfere with that vision? And I think one of the things that I would also ask you to think about in terms of that is in your book, you have a chapter called The Service or the Genius of Religious Institution. And so I'd like for you to reflect on that for us. So I love the beloved community, by the way. I, I love the various ways that religious language has helped us describe our nation. City on a hill, beloved community, new Jerusalem, better angels of our nature, almost chosen people, right? There's a reason that G.K. Chesterton said that America is a nation with the soul of a church. And that's not just because of the religiosity of the people, but but because we have imagined our country with religious language, and that religious language is continually expansive. So I think of America now in Muslim terms as a new Medina. Medina was the city that the Prophet Muhammad moved to when he got harassed out of Mecca. And amongst the first things he did was to build uh, a pact of loyalty between the diverse religious groups and tribes of Medina, something called the Constitution of Medina. So the, the way we talk at Interfaith America about the nation right now is we call it a potluck nation. Of course, the, the old version of this is melting pot. But, you know, what a nightmare if you were invited to a potluck dinner and you brought your grandmother's famous crusty bread recipe and you were met at the door with this giant melting machine that melted it into some tasteless goo. And you saw somebody bring in their, you know, their famous dip, and you thought to yourself, boy, that would go really great with my grandma's crusty bread. And it had to deal with the melting machine and melt it into some tasteless goo. And so we would much rather, you know, have a flavorful feast together. And, and this notion that that America at its best welcomes the distinctive contributions of diverse people. It creates really tasty combinations between them, and then it serves it to the community so that the the community, the nation can feast. And you know, religions actually do this, right? So religious communities have potlucks. Fannie Lou Hamer would talk about America as the welcome table beside a Baptist church, right, in the rural South. And one of the things I love about religious traditions is they articulate a vision of the good. In fact, it's often articulated in scripture, in the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the 
the Gospels or the Hebrew Bible. You have this, this cosmic vision of the good, and then you approximate it as closely as you can on Earth. And you build institutions which are, you know, some approximation of what you hope, the, of, of what you believe the cosmic vision of goodness to be. And, and, I mean, we do that really well in religious communities, and we don't give ourselves enough credit for it, and we don't get enough credit for it. And, and I mean, I'll give you an obvious example, and that's Methodist Hospital in Dallas, right? Or all of the Methodist and Catholic and Lutheran and Jewish hospitals and Muslim health clinics around the, the country and the world. Why, why do we do this? Because we believe that physical health and spiritual health are connected. We feel like that is those are joined in, in a version of the cosmic good, and we attempt to approximate it on earth, and we never do it only for ourselves. Methodist Hospital has Hindu physicians, it has Muslim patients, it has atheist administrators. I just think that that's a remarkable fact of religious life in America and the world. And we ought to recognize that that is what we are doing. And just, you know, take a moment to feel some pride that we are attempting to live up to the highest ideals of our tradition. And then we should get back to work. As a response to that, I think you called out something that I've been noticing, that perhaps one of the most diverse communities I'm around is the medical community. You walk into a hospital and you see people from, from everywhere who literally are, are working in that hospital, they're physicians, uh, they're administrators, you, you said that perfectly. And so I think about Methodist hospitals, which are everywhere, and how it is that they really uh, exemplify uh, what we're talking about in terms of that diversity and this larger, significant community. You know, I, I run into people all the time who are like, is interfaith cooperation even possible? And I'm like, it was the story of your birth. You were born in an interfaith situation. You were born at a Catholic hospital and a, a Hindu doctor delivered you and she was supported by a, a nurse who was a Jehovah's Witness and it was sanit the room was sanitized by a Muslim and the CEO was an atheist who grew up Jane. And the, you know, the pediatrician is Jewish. And, and that's like everywhere all the time. By the way, those people voted differently. They have different views on important matters. And that did not stop them from making sure you were delivered as a happy, healthy baby. And that's what interfaith cooperation is all about. This is really exciting to be reminded of the institutions that faith communities inaugurated or birthed. And so healthcare, child care, elder care, and higher education. And initially, a lot of the religiously birthed institutions were about access for those that were, maybe didn't have access. But as you think forward with us and with the audience, what, what's the next horizon of institution creation that religious organizations or faith-based communities should be paying attention to? Thank you for that question, Bishop Gregory. And, and you know, you and I have a, a, long, a long history, and I owe you a lot. I owe you a lot for our, our, our moments together when, when I was a graduate. And I just want to let you and the audience know how, how grateful I am for, for your taking time with me when I was a graduate student trying to figure out my path and my soul. And, and there you were, and you took that time, and I'm grateful. So, you know, one of the exercises that I open my speeches with when I speak to audiences is 
Imagine all the faith-based institutions in your city disappearing overnight. Let's take a walk in the morning. Let's see what's gone. Okay, let's begin with the churches and synagogues and mosques, and maybe you shed a, you know, a single tear that people will not have a place to worship. But there's actually more than that, right? Where's the AA group going to meet? Who's going to make sure that, that kids' backpacks are, are filled with food on Friday afternoons the way that the, the synagogue Temple Sinai in Chicago does for a local elementary school and synagogues all over the and churches all over the country do? Who does employment training? Who does AIDS? All those congregations, that's what they're involved in. And then let's look at the hospitals and let's look at the universities and let's look at the social service agencies. It's precisely what you said, um, Bishop Greg. And to just do that visual exercise, I just think it's, it gives people pause, right? Nobody knows that Methodists started 120 colleges and universities. Y'all are not very good at telling your own story in that regard, right? But USC, Syracuse, Emory, Duke, a bunch of smaller places, SMU, you know, they wouldn't exist if the Methodist community had not founded them. I think that's a big deal. So what's the future? I think the future is interfaith efforts to doing this together, right? And, and I think we ought to be proud that virtually all of the institutions that faith communities built, all the civic institutions, right? Sunday school is a little bit different. How we do funerals and burials are a little bit different. But the hospitals, the schools, the social service agencies, they almost all serve everybody. I think the future is going to be the Muslim Methodist Disaster Relief Services, uh, the Jewish Jane Hospital. I would like to think that that's, that that's the future. Wow. Thank you. Ibu, I love that future. That That's so positive and forward-thinking. And we've been talking about the institutions, the aspects of our religious lives and our even our secular lives that have been living into their better angels. And yet we know that we're mired in a milieu that still has, uh, as Isabel Wilkerson called it, uh, you know, our American caste system. And so to get to this new horizon, this better future that you and, and Bishop Palmer were just talking about, how do we rest ourselves from where we are if we're not even to admit who we are. There are so many that deny that we do have something akin to a caste system, uh, especially when uh, those that are not in the dominant culture are still yearning for proximity to what America deems the, the dominant culture. And those in that culture are accustomed to having themselves and their culture be the measuring stick with which everyone else is is judged or, or aspiring to. How do we disabuse ourselves of all of that so that we can get to this better future? that you're talking about? Thank you for that question, uh, Bishop Easterling. So I just want to say in the podcast, like I just, I was just, ra- you know, uh, all of these good, good people told me to call them by their first name and I was just raised, you call religious leaders by their titles. And so that's, uh, I've tried every once in a while I'll slip and say Mike because I've known Mike McKee for, for we've had we've had back and forth several times a year for, for the last five or eight years or so. But anyway, just to let folks in the podcast know, one cannot outgrow one's upbringing too far. So, so you know, Bishop Easterling, I, I love the Baldwin line. I imagine, I imagine you love it faced, too. Yes. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And so, you know, I go see every August Wilson production that comes through Chicago because that that's you're, you're facing American racism every decade of the 20th century mm-hmm. right 
I have a friend, Brad Braxton, my familiar to some of you. You know, he told me this line, which sent chills up my spine. He said, "There are places in mm. the Atlantic Ocean where the sar- mm. the sharks still circle because they are accustomed to being fed." Right. I mean, right. W- we have to face this, and we do not have to stay there. We have to face this, and we do not have to stay there. So, to right tell the story of America only from Martin Luther King Jr. to Barack Obama is a lie. And it's also a lie to, t- to tell the story that the oppressions of 350 years ago are exactly the same. So how do we face the past in a raw and brutal way? How do we tell the stories of overcoming an achievement? And how do we help more people on the path to overcoming an achievement? It is simpler to say it than to do it. But here's the thing, we can do it, right? Every kid who wants to join a basketball team should be able to join a basketball team. Every kid that wants to play an instrument should be able to play an instrument. Every kid that wants to to have an arts educator should have an arts educator, right? Like there are things that we can do. Thank you. So a couple of questions uh, as we begin to wrap up, uh, Ibu. The first one is, before I say it, thank you so much for sharing uh, your wisdom with us today, but... We're asking each of our guests, all of them, the same two questions. How do you talk with people about racial justice who do not think, act, or look like you? Through stories, you know, the Jesus way. And I think to tell Baldwin's The Fire Next Time is such a great path on that. I mean, I watch this with my kids. You know, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story right now, which, I, which I, I'm sharing a lot of the stories from my new book, We Need to Build, but here, here's one of them. You know, I, I live near this great concert venue called the Old Town School of Folk Music, and I'm walking by the venue with my son, Zay. This is three, four years ago. And there's a poster of a band that my wife and I really like called Tina Rowan. They're this kind of roots roots music west african band many of them are muslim and the poster has them dressed in you know robes and in head wraps and they're set against uh, the desert in west africa and i pointed the poster out to my son zaid and i said zaid you know mom and i are going to take you to see tina rowan we love this band the, the music is terrific and my son looks at me and he says dad that's isis so we're a muslim family mm-hmm. Right. Like Muslim prayer every night and like really positive stories about Islam. And this is a poster at a concert venue of a band. And my son's instinct when he sees dark men in robes and head wraps Mm. is those must be Muslim terrorists because there's poison in the culture. Mm. Right. There's poison in the culture that this is the culture is telling you that you are violent, that people who look like this are violent, even if they have instruments in their hands. Look, I am 46, I'm 22, 23 years into building an organization. This happens to me very infrequently now, but it happened all the time growing up, Hmm. and I watch it happening to my, I just watch the invisible poison in the culture seep in, even in like Whole Foods, liberal, multicultural embracing America, which is where we live. And not every place is like that. That's where we live. And it still has an effect. So as a follow-up, a question we ask everyone is this. In the midst of all of that, how do you care for your own soul or your own spirit? Thank you for that. So, so 
I'm actually good at that. And I'm lucky. I, you know, I run an organization. I get to set my own schedule largely. I have an unbelievable staff, set of staff and colleagues. I have the unbelievable good fortune and grace of God to have basically invented a path and to walk the path that I've invented. That doesn't mean that things aren't hard sometimes or I don't work too hard sometimes or whatever, but you know, I've, I was raised thinking I was the luckiest person on earth. I now think I'm probably the luckiest person for several planets around me. And I just walk that path. I, I, I you know, I get to live that way. I get to live. I don't think that's a very good answer to your question. I certainly don't think it's going to help anybody on this podcast. But, but let me put it this way. When something internal says it's time to back off a little bit, I try to get some time to back off. When uh, I think to myself, boy, I really need to write down these thoughts, I try to get some time to write down those thoughts. And so... And when I find myself in a situation, you know, going back to a high school reunion, thinking to myself, I cannot believe that, like, you know, I was subject to conversations about popularity and clothes for however many years between middle school and high school. And, and I'm surrounded now by conversations about God and ideas. I, I remember how lucky I am. And I'm, I'm unbelievably lucky. Thank you. So we really appreciate you being with us. And sharing your thoughts. And uh, as always, in any conversation with you, Ibu, always learn something and I'm always inspired. And I want to thank you for being with us. And I know that Bishop Easterling and Bishop Palmer may want to have something else to say too. And I'd encourage them to do that as we begin to wrap up. Well, thank you, Bishop Makia. I appreciate that. And two things that struck me, Ibu, as, as you've been talking to us, and I am very grateful for this conversation and the ways that, that you have just inspired me. And I look forward to that book, We Need to Build. Do I have that right? Yes. All right. You have that right. And thank, thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to Methodists about that book. Amen. So. Amen. We will give you that opportunity. But two things stick out for me. I, I think about the, the story that you opened us with, with a professor sitting in the classroom amongst the students and wondering if anyone will notice. As a former prosecutor, I remember walking into a courtroom and having a judge bark at me to go back out and wait uh, until my attorney showed up. And I was the prosecuting attorney. <laughs> and I'll never forget how that made me feel. So we need to be able to tell our own stories of how we've been abused through bias. But then I also hear you say we need to confront stories that continue to perpetuate bias. So that's what resonates for me and, and what I will continue to think about as I allow what you've taught us today to percolate within my own spirit. Thank you. It's great to be with you. It was a grace uh, to meet you the first time and to occasionally run into you around the country. And uh, thank you for today. I have never uh, been in your presence, uh, even if I was in the audience just listening, that I have not learned and grown and walked away with at least one provocative question. Thank you. Appreciate that. Friends, please join us next time as we talk about choosing a path forward with Opal Lee. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Connect with us and find related resources on our website, theunfinishedchurch.org. The Unfinished Church, conversations that transform.